This message was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Stephen, one of the pastors here, and I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, taking a break from our current series in Philippians to focus on Advent, and we're going to begin in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians is little letter in our New Testament that exalts Jesus Christ in a great way, and I think that's makes it a good, good place for us to begin Advent, because just so we're clear, Christmas is about Jesus Christ. And so we want to begin here in this little letter. Paul the Apostle is the author of Colossians. He writes from the city of Rome where he is in prison. We're familiar with that because of our Philippians series. And apparently Paul had learned that there was some false teaching going on in the church in Colossae. It was harming that young church. And so he writes to encourage the new Christians there to turn away from this false teaching and to be sure to stay focused on Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. So I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, to follow along as I read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is the Word of God. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. These are your words that you have given to us, and we pray now that you would give us the special and powerful help of your Holy Spirit in understanding them for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. In his helpful commentary on the Minor Prophets, Thomas McComsky writes, that the Minor Prophets have not enjoyed great prominence in the history of biblical interpretation. Now that is, I think, a scholarly and somewhat fancy way of saying that few people, in fact almost no one, is paying any attention to the message of the Minor Prophets, that is the last twelve books of the Old Testament. And yet in God's kindness, while that might be true of most people in most places, that is not true, praise be to God, that is not true of those of us 
here at Cornerstone Church. Because this past summer, we enjoyed what I thought, listening to the other pastors, was a wonderful series of sermons in the Minor Prophets. And we discovered that they were very much worth our time and attention. One of the things we noticed is that the message of the Minor Prophets is a message about the love of God, which was something of a surprise, because we tend to think that the prophets are going to be all doom and gloom. Instead, they were rich with hope. The commentator McCominsky reminds us, Although the minor prophets were written in difficult times, they envisioned a new era for the people of God. Amos spoke of the restoration of David's collapsing monarchy, and Micah foresaw the coming ruler whose birthplace would be the insignificant town of Bethlehem. The message of the minor prophets included Advent messages because they pointed toward the coming of the Savior, Jesus Christ. We can just look in one place in the Minor Prophets. If you want to flip back to Malachi chapter 4, these are some of the last verses of the Old Testament. And in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 4, the Lord says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. In his comments on these verses, Mark Dever says, what an interesting way for the Old Testament to end. In this concluding word, the Lord instructed his people both to look back and to look forward. They were to look back to the law of Moses, but they were also to look forward to the Messiah coming and the preparatory work of Elijah. God employed his last prophet, that's Malachi, before John the Baptist to remind God's people of the law and the prophets, Moses representing Elijah, representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets, the same two who would stand with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration pointing to Jesus. You see, that's what the law of Moses does. And that's what the minor prophets do. They point to the advent, to the coming of Jesus Christ, to his arrival. Christ's coming is the fulfillment of God's promise to save a people for himself. And because the advent of Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise, his greatest promise, then we must find our greatest satisfaction in him. That is, by the way, our main point for this morning. Because the advent of Christ is the fulfillment of God's greatest promise, we must find our great satisfaction in him. 
Now back in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, there are a couple of things, at least, for us to keep in mind as we seek to find our greatest satisfaction in Christ. And the first thing is that we must reject self-sufficient religion. Now, don't let that word religion cause you to check out right now, thinking to yourself, I'm not a religious person, I'm more into relationship and so on. Because I could have put, instead of religion, the word tradition, but I thought that would seem like I was trying to pick on our Christmas traditions. Or I could have put rituals. We, we rely on self-sufficient rituals just a little bit, right? We've got to have just the right cup of coffee in the morning there and, and so on. We tend to rely on, on things, and these things can become religious, and for many people they are religious, and so we need to be aware of the self-sufficient part of these things. In the city of Colossae, where the church that Paul wrote to was, there was all kinds of false teaching going on. There were many false ideas, and New Testament scholars debate over the exact nature of these false teachings. Probably they were a blending of a few different things. There were Gnostic teachers who said that they had possession of some secret information that if you knew this information, you could be especially spiritual. And they would, of course, gladly give it to you for a price. And then there were localized mystery religions, these little cults that said, if you just treated your body in the right way, if you were very rigorous and harshly treated your physical body, then it might release your spiritual self in a big and new way. And then there were people, even in the church at Colossae, who were Jewish people who had converted to Christianity, who were saying, you know, it's really important for you to know Jesus if you're going to be a Christian. Just remember that along with knowing Jesus, you also need to do a lot of other things, a lot of these things that are printed here in the pages of the Old Testament. Now, Paul, he inspired by God's Holy Spirit, speaking for God, bringing God's Word to, to, to the city of, of Colossians. He sends this, sends this letter, and he deals with all of these false teachings. But most Bible commentators tell us that this 16th verse that we read is speaking especially of those Jewish false teachers who were telling people in the church that they needed to observe the Old Testament law, even though Christ had come. And so Paul begins in that 16th verse, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. So he's pushing back against these false teachers who are going to introduce this idea of self-sufficiency in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And he addresses questions of food and drink. That's there in the middle of verse 16. 
Now the Old Testament contained all kinds of laws about what the people were supposed to eat, dietary laws. You can read about them in different places. Leviticus 11 is a good place to go. We might be thinking coming off the Thanksgiving holiday and all the food that we packed in that we might benefit from some dietary laws at this point. And yet these dietary laws of the Old Testament were not primarily about health. They were religious in nature. The people of Israel were to be set apart from the other nations. So they were given, given these dietary laws. Paul also addresses questions of drink. There were not sweeping Old Testament laws about drinking for all the people of Israel, but there were special laws about that for priests when they were on duty and for people who were making special religious vows. So if you were involved in some sort of particular religious activity or you were wanting to make a special spiritual commitment, you might abstain from drinking. Here, however, Paul is going to tell the Colossian Christians that they need not follow these laws in order to be acceptable in the sight of God, in order to be spiritual enough. In fact, Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 7 had declared all foods clean. And another, another apostle the Apostle Peter, he had a vision in which he, he, he learned from this vision that he could eat from any foods. It, it's in Acts 10, and there you can also read the reason for the vision. It's that we might not pass judgment on others because God, through the sending of, of Jesus, his son, intended to save people from every nation, no matter what their diet was. Paul also tells the Colossians not to allow others to judge them with regard to a festival. It's near the end of verse 16. These would have included the Old Testament feasts of the Passover, the first fruits, the Feast of Weeks, and others. They're all in Leviticus. Paul wants to show that the value of these feasts is in the way they pointed towards the future work of God. The same was true of the new moon and the Sabbath that are mentioned there at the end of verse 16. There were also special religious observances on the Sabbath day and at the first of every new month. And these were not, lest we misunderstand Paul, these were not pointless observances. But God wants us to know that they were pointing observances. They were pointing to Jesus Christ. Their purpose in the Old Testament era was to build the faith of the people of God in his promise to send a Savior, in his promise of a Messiah. But now in Paul's day and in our day, the Messiah has come. 
And so the system of religion, if you can call it that, in the Old Testament has succeeded in communicating to humankind how sinful we are and how God is going to meet that need and provide a way of salvation through the shedding of blood, ultimately through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. The Old Testament people had a sense of this. Even Abraham, early in the pages of the Old Testament, he's going up the mountain with his son Isaac, and he says to Isaac, God himself will provide a ram for the sacrifice. And indeed, God does provide. God has provided Jesus Christ to be the Savior of the world, to fulfill all of the longing of the Old Testament period. Jesus himself talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus fulfills the longing of the Old Testament when he comes. Now, I wonder, since these false teachers that Paul addresses in verse 16 were part of the Christian church in Colossae, why was it that having heard the gospel, they were so insistent on continuing to observe these Old Testament things. And I think part of the answer may be they were not willing to stop depending on themselves. They had a sense of pride in themselves. And they felt certain that as they approached God, they at least needed to do their half of the bargain with God. And so they were legalistic in their relationship with God. Dr. Piper defines legalism for us. Legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power in order to earn God's favor. In other words, legalism will be present whenever a person is trying to be ethical in his own strength without relying on the merciful help of God in Christ. For the legalist, morality serves the same function that immorality does for the antinomian. That's someone who just rejects God's law and wants to do whatever they wish. The free thinker, the progressive, namely it serves as an expression of self-reliance and self-assertion. So the legalist, according to Dr. Piper's definition, is just like the person who doesn't even care what God says. The legalist wants to stand on his or her own two feet before God. Now these rules about eating and drinking and observing festivals and special days had their purpose and they had fulfilled their purpose. But the false teachers did not want to set them aside because they themselves did not want 
to step aside. They did not want to rely on the provision of Christ because they were proudly determined to provide for themselves. Or perhaps they felt they were too sophisticated for the simple message of the gospel. The New Testament call to repent of sin and to trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross as as payment for that sin. It could be that these false teachers were thinking to themselves, it can't be that simple. There needs to be more. Yes, sure, you you can have Jesus, but you also need to have more. You you need to have maybe a special diet or these special meals and law-keeping. Jesus is great, but we want to have Jesus, and we want to have fill-in-the-blank. We want to do our part as well. We want to, surely we're we're good enough to step out there and God is going to smile on us because we're doing these things. And this message about Jesus Christ coming and doing it all for us, it just can't be that simple. Now, it's important for us to understand this because people though we are now many centuries from the time these people live, people continue to do these things today. They feel that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't quite enough. I mean, surely, they think, I also need to have some financial security now Or maybe they feel the Bible isn't quite enough, and they think, well, I know the Bible's great and all, but with my particular personal problems, I'm probably going to need to go out there and look for some kind of help from some humanist expert. Or maybe they feel the power of the Holy Spirit isn't enough, and they think we need some political power as well. It can't be that simple. Let's add stuff. Let's rely on ourselves. Talk about the Grinch who stole Christmas. Legalism steals souls. Because when it comes to the deepest needs of the human soul, your deepest need, self-sufficiency cannot satisfy. God's message in the Old Testament, the worship of the people of Israel throughout the ages, the longing of God's people through the history books, the eager expectation of the minor prophets, it was all stretching out in faith towards something greater. The Old Testament practice was not satisfactory in itself, but it was aiming at the one who could truly satisfy. And so we also must embrace that all-satisfying reality, which is our second point. The first was beware of self-sufficient religion, man-centered religion. Instead, embrace all-satisfying reality. What is that reality? 
The reality is that we find our salvation and our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. He is the heart of Advent. He is, if I could just say it plainly, the meaning of Christmas. Jesus Christ is. And Advent is about longing for Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is full of longing. Jesus Christ stands over all of history, including that Old Testament period, and his shadow is cast over it all. The Old Testament is full of longing. It's like a shadow of something greater. Verse 17, Paul said, these are a shadow of the things to come. This word translated shadow could also be sketch or, or drawing. So the system of laws and sacrifices and festivals in the Old Testament were a rough draft or a blueprint of something greater that God would do in sending Jesus Christ. The Bible knows this. The author of the book of Hebrews knows this. And he says in Hebrews chapter 5, they, these Old Testament things, serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And Hebrews 10 verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The Old Testament system could never make people perfect, but it all points towards the advent of the one who can. The one who is to come. Back in Colossians 2, verse 17 again. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Substance. Literally, it means body. I, I kind of like that because a body casts a shadow. I can see my shadow here behind me. We see the shadow of Jesus Christ in all of the prophetic literature. We see the shadow of Jesus Christ in the cultic system of Leviticus. It all points to him. He is the substance. He is the body. Some translations say the reality. He is the one who saves. He is the one who satisfies. The Old Testament people were longing for a savior even today. The world is longing for something. You can feel it in the cultural air that we breathe, in every new product advertisement, in every political campaign. The world is longing for something. And the good news is that the reality that we are longing for, not just the shadow, but the ultimate reality that every human heart longs for has come. Christ has come. And he, he's explained 
He himself explained how the prophets were longing for his advent. We read in Luke 24, 27 about Jesus. After his death and resurrection, he's having a conversation with two men. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, there's your Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All the scripture is about Jesus Christ. It's all focused on Jesus Christ. The substance belongs to Christ, and it's focused upon Jesus Christ because there is no one greater than Christ. Back in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, in verse 15, so I just turned back one page in my Bible. Here we have this amazing description of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That is, Jesus is God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is the creator, verse 17, and he holds all things, and, and he is before all things, and, to, and in him all things hold together. That is, he is the sustainer of everything. And he is, verse 18, the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He is the ruler of all. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the Savior of the world. Jesus Christ, who came into the world 2,000 years ago as a baby, laying in a manger in Bethlehem, is the creator, the ruler, the sustainer, and the Savior of the world. That being the case, efforts towards happiness in this life without him will ultimately fail. And efforts at holiness without him are a waste ultimately. Mike mentioned the lousy Christmas songs. Be good for goodness sake. Okay. But you can't be good enough to cancel the debt of your own sin. You can't be good enough to scrub it away no matter how hard you try. Paul makes this clear in Colossians 2 and verse 23, referring to the self-sufficient efforts of people to clean themselves up for God. He says, these, these efforts have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We cannot look within ourselves 
for solutions to our biggest problem, and that is that we are sinners. And because we have inherited this, this nature of rebellion against God, and because we have on our very own piled up a whole mountain of sin against God, we are under the wrath of God, and we cannot solve that problem ourselves, but we must direct our attention to Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3, in the middle of verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above and not on things of the earth. Jesus Christ came to set his people free. Free from the curse of death. Free from the burden of sin. Free from our enemy, the devil. Paul explains it all in Colossians 2, before the verses we read, beginning with verse 13 of Colossians 2. And you, if you've trusted Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And so God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven you of your trespasses. You, if you've trusted Christ, verse 14 of Colossians 2, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's like you have a bill that is due, and Jesus Christ on the cross tears it to shreds and throws it away. Your payment is made by Christ on the cross. Verse 15, Jesus Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. These rulers and authorities are, are the spiritual forces that hate you and hate God. But in Christ Jesus, God has triumphed over all of them. That's why in verse 16, the next verse, it says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. It's because Jesus Christ himself has already taken the judgment that you deserve. So you are free from these things because he has fulfilled all of these things. Even the judgment that you deserve, he has taken that and he has fulfilled that. When you repent from sin and trust Christ, you are free from the curse of death, free from the guilt of sin, and free from the oppression of the devil and all his terrible powers. My mentor pastor years ago, Bernie Kuyper, was trying to find an artist who would sketch a nativity scene, a picture, and what he wanted in this particular picture was the, the baby Jesus in a manger, but instead of Jesus being surrounded by petting zoo animals and so on, he, he wanted Jesus laying there, surrounded by a legion of horrible-looking and powerful demons who were drawing back in terror around this little baby because they knew that God's greatest promise, the sending of the Savior, His Son, had come. 
Jesus came, and we are so glad that he did. When Jesus comes, shadows disappear. But the real thing remains. Jesus said, moth and rust destroy, which among other things I believe was his way of telling us that the new presents that we're going to get at Christmas will eventually be old, and they will find their way to the carm store or to the walls of Cracker Barrel or wherever it is they are destined to end up. Efforts at happiness fade away. The shadows of happiness disappear. But the reality of Christ remains. All of our efforts that we are planning now for January 1st to hone our bodies into shape after the holidays, all of those efforts will ultimately fail, but the reality of Christ remains. Efforts to improve our minds through education and thinking and, and trying to get better, those, those things will ultimately fail, but the reality of Christ remains. Efforts to create an ideology or philosophy for living will eventually fail like the shadows do when the sun rises, but the reality of Jesus Christ remains. Efforts to do good, to just be good, to make a difference in this world, to obey laws will eventually fall short, but the reality of Jesus Christ remains. And the reality is that 2,000 years ago, God sent His Son, the Savior Jesus Christ, into the world. So this Advent season, let's embrace the all-satisfying reality of Christ. In his New Advent devotional, John Piper writes, The meaning of Christmas is that the substance belongs to Christ. That is, religious ritual is like a shadow of a great and glorious person. Let us turn from the shadow and look the person in the face. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is worth getting excited about because he is the fulfillment of your greatest promise to make a people for your glory through a Savior. Thank you for him, Lord. Help us to celebrate him this Christmas and to see him as so great and so highly exalted that everything else pales in comparison. Do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.